This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a very special episode. We are discussing the recently released Future of Nursing Report, Future of Nursing 2020 to 2030, Charting a Path to Achieve Health Equity with Dr. Susan Hassmiller, Senior Advisor for Nursing at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Senior Scholar in Residence for the National Academy of Medicine. And joining her is Dr. Janelle Sokolowicz. Academic Vice President and Dean for the College of Health Professions at Western Governors University, a leading institution offering competency-based nursing education. For those of you who are not aware of the Future of Nursing Report, this is a landmark consensus study supported by the National Academy of Medicine and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It charts a 10-year path for the nursing profession to help our nation create a culture of health, reduce health disparities, and improve the health and well-being of the U.S. population in the 21st century. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed serious inequities in the nation's healthcare system, with frontline healthcare workers often lacking the necessary PPE and other equipment to safely and effectively do their jobs. In the murder of George Floyd, shined a spotlight on the structural racism that exists in the workplace and society at large. In the wake of these challenges, the Future of Nursing Report provides us with the North Star to guide the nursing profession over the next 10 years with a particular focus on reducing health inequities and improving health outcomes through value-based care. Nurses are key to health, healthcare, and the future success of our healthcare industry. And educational programs that provide equity and access and learning will ensure our nursing workforce has both the cultural humility and clinical competence to address the needs for greater health equity and diversity. In this podcast episode, you will hear from two major thought leaders in the world of nursing who will provide their insights on the future of nursing. Let's go ahead and hear from Drs. Hassmiller and Sokolowicz as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Susan Hassmiller and Dr. Janelle Sokolowicz, 
Thank you for joining the Race to Value podcast. It's so wonderful to have the opportunity to discuss the future of nursing report and how competency-based education and diversity of the nursing workforce can help us chart a path to achieve health equity. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Doctors Hessmiller and Sokolowicz, as we begin our discussion today, I think it's important that we talk about the current lack of diversity in the nursing workforce and how higher education has historically contributed to that problem. The need for greater diversity in the nursing workforce is really woven throughout the future of nursing report. Currently, the nursing workforce remains predominantly white and female, and about 90% of the nursing leaders in the U.S. are white. Those numbers do not adequately reflect the current demographic makeup of the country. We must now take a bold stance on the need to eliminate structural and institutional racism in nursing and educational institutions really play an absolute role in making this happen. You know, many nursing programs and clinical practice sites are taking some action on diversity and the more contemporary concepts of equity and inclusion, but without making the necessary commitment to comprehensive system-wide approaches that create meaningful culture change, we're not really going to get there. So, you know, just in thinking about it, as health professions programs begin to implement quality standards and cultural change to improve fairness, you know, I'm just thinking about how are they going to go about eliminating implicit bias and teaching and learning and, you know, knowing it's the root cause of many of the outcome disparities we see in educational programs and how do we account for these micro inequities that are subtle, often unconscious and sometimes unintentional messages that often devalue, discourage and impede academic performance. Can you provide some insight into how nursing programs should be thinking about how to eliminate bias and teaching and learning by increasing awareness, using inclusive language with students? and redesigning how assessments are conducted, will higher education possibly be able to recalibrate longstanding beliefs that have persisted for generations? So this is Sue, Dr. Hassmiller. Maybe I will start a little bit by saying that during the uh, compilation of the report, The Future of Nursing, Charting a Path to Health Equity, we really didn't find a lot of schools of nursing in the country that had these concepts incorporated uh, into their curricula. Uh, even though there are many people in this country who have been working on these issues for decades as part of their life work, it's really material that's coming new to a lot of people. So the need to think about curricula and what to teach in that curricula is really important. You know, nursing history is filled with stories about Florence Nightingale and Lillian Wald, and they leave out other stories. For example, the Black Angels, the 300 nurses who were at Seaview Hospital from 1928 to 1960, caring for tuberculosis patients quarantined after white nurses refused to provide care. This is Janelle Sokolich. As a um, educator, I've recognized bias in our curriculum and assessments from just simple exclusion of entire patient populations such as what we see with our transgender population, use of stereotypes. I've recognized significant use of colloquialism uh, that I found even beyond just um, racial bias because we use a lot of colloquialisms and can be difficult for multilingual students. I think every developer has to start to be really conscious of their own bias, but they also have to be trained. You know, there's a significant amount of training around recognition 
of your own personal bias, but also recognition of bias within content. Uh, that requires a very keen eye. Um, as an African-American woman in a predominantly white profession, it has been very recognized, the bias that exists personally for me, as well as for my students who may be multilingual. I specialize in ESL students and ELL students, and I've recognized significant bias in many of the testing that they're introduced to. So I think we have to offer some alternative pathways. We have a lot of things that we can do from a higher education perspective, but specifically in nursing education by simple education and recognition of the bias that's within our curriculum. When we are developing test questions, how diverse are those who are developing the questions? Let's ask ourselves some simple questions that I think can help move us forward quickly. So I'm glad you talked about um, the recognition of biases. I think there are many faculty members, if not most faculty members, who aren't comfortable talking about the impact of racism on health and health care. So not only does the curricula need to change, but we need training for faculty on how to have these crucial conversations as well. And you mentioned perhaps the, the test scores and some of the policies, but I tell you, as a former public health nurse and someone who used to teach public health in a couple of different schools of nursing, I know the importance of clinical experiences in the community as well. Getting out there is just essential to understanding social determinants of health and gaining competencies necessary to advance health equity. I mean, one study found that restricting education in classroom caused medical students to have more negative attitudes towards underserved populations. And then there's a whole issue of diversifying the student body and faculty, cultivating inclusive environments, recruiting and admitting diverse groups of students, providing students with mentors and support and addressing barriers to their success throughout their entire academic career and on into practice is really so supportive. There's that notion, which I, I think you can probably talk about, I learned about when we were working on the report, and that is the notion of holistic recruitment. So you're bringing in people who really look like each other so they have that support system. At WGU, I, I think we've done a phenomenal job of really thinking through. Um, have we solved it? No, but we've, we've thought through really holistic admission through just having a competency-based framework. What that says is the student comes in and we don't just look at assessment scores and past grades, we really look at the whole person by sheer nature and say, what is it that you have? What is it that you bring? How can I evaluate any course that you've ever taken to give you credit for that and credit for that knowledge that you have? And what are those experiences that you have? You talk about social determinants of health and we know health equity is our end goal, but in order to even achieve that, we have to create these pathways to education. And that's something I think we've also done really well at WGU. Because as a person that comes from an underrepresented minority population, oftentimes there's an assumption that we're everyone's taught the same about continuing their education and leaving high school and college is the next step. And that's not always taught in underrepresented minority populations because it is this overarching idea of how you have to 
financially support all of family members and, and extended family members. And so there's another notion that we need to create those pathways to education, and that can be done through credentials, certifications, very small bits and pieces of education that can be accomplished while maintaining family responsibilities. And that is huge for our next generation. The generation that has recognized the inequity and recognized these generational gaps and impacts of social determinants of health, creating those pathways is significant and will help to bridge the gap and also create opportunities for those diverse individuals to enter higher education. That's great. I love how you're such an expert in education. I learned something else in the report, and that's something called a diversity tax. And that's where we're we're depending upon faculty of color to really do it all, to be part of those committees, to do all the mentoring of underrepresented minorities. And a lot of those activities that are uncompensated, unacknowledged, or unrewarded, and that's where the diversity tax comes from. I I think this is the time now, and we really stress this in, in the report, that this is responsibility of all nurses to be aware of these issues, all educators, all students, to be aware of these issues and not just people of color. It's, it's all of us together that make, need to make a difference. I totally understand and have seen that, but I also believe that we can empower our friends, our colleagues that are majority colleagues to participate with us. That's exactly right. So I wanted to ask you both, how can we, in creating educational experiences in the nursing profession that embrace diversity and inclusion, ultimately, how does that translate into the industry where we're actually delivering culturally competent care? I mean, it can be difficult to recalibrate longstanding beliefs, but we we can create change if we prioritize it and focus on it, and, and we really must. I think the pandemic really spotlighted inequities that have persisted for generations. And we've got to chart this path. So if we successfully recruit and retain nurses from underrepresented backgrounds and give every nursing graduate an understanding of the social determinants of health and health equity, then student nurses who graduate will be better prepared. And and really able to provide culturally relevant care and address health equity. I believe we have to change the currency. Again, beyond looking at the whole person, beyond the assessment, beyond their background, and we have to really evaluate the whole person and consider the whole person as we uh, consider students for admission into nursing programs. We have to create support systems for students that are diverse when they enter the program, so that they can actually complete the program and then enter the nursing workforce. And that takes effort beyond even pathway programs, but really the the thought process of holistic admission, really creating the opportunity and synergy for students from diverse backgrounds to enter the health workforce, but also educating and arming them on cultural humility and really requiring that as part of our standard approach in our curricula. It's important that we create currency of culture, right? The communication of culture. 
the communication of consideration of the whole person within our nursing students. They must leave and, and recognize when they look out on the landscape of their patient population that each individual comes with their backgrounds that are diverse, their diverse experiences, and that they can learn from every single person that they engage with. It seems simple, but it's very difficult to really look at a person and say, you bring something to my life and I have this interaction for a purpose. So our goal as educators is to empower our students to leave us to have cultural currency in their communication and their actions so that they can provide beyond competent care, but care that is enhanced and enlaced with humility. Some people in this country have this tremendous lived experience. They are nurses of color. They've been working on these issues for decades. And then others of us are coming to this new and thank goodness we have this report. And I just really ask people at this time, you've said it, this cultural humility, but I am asking people to be really kind now. With everything that has happened in this country between COVID and now the Delta variants and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and everything that this country has gone through, what I'm calling for is an understanding on all sides between those people who have lived this for decades and people who are coming to this new to have patience with one another. It doesn't mean I want the action to stop. No, we have to do all this, change the curricula, change the admission process, do everything that we're gonna talk about. But I am asking people to remember to be kind with one another, with all the bullying and everything that's going on and with great understanding and having those crucial conversations so that we can really understand each other. I will tell you this, Janelle, if nurses cannot do this, I, I don't know who can. Who can, that's right. We clearly must overcome the historically low underrepresentation of populations enrolling in nursing programs, ongoing reports of bias and discrimination in health professions, learning environments, and a continuing dearth of proven and replicable best practices to advance diversity. And I hear you both saying pretty emphatically that the nursing workforce of tomorrow will ultimately be determined by advancing equity in higher education. One opportunity I think to do this is through competency-based education. In the future of nursing report, the competency-based education model at WGU or Western Governors University is actually mentioned specifically as an example where non-traditional students can enter the nursing profession because of self-paced learning and lower tuition costs. It seems that all of nursing education is eventually moving in this direction. And earlier this year, the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, AACN, took bold action to proclaim that competency-based education is the way forward for nurse education and approved a framework of core competencies for professional nursing education, which delineates competency expectations for graduates of baccalaureate and graduate nursing programs. This move to competency-based education in nursing certainly has implications to advance the movement towards health equity, as student advancement is based on the actual mastery of a skill or competency, which eliminates the potential for bias in more traditional educational models. Could you both comment on competency-based education as discussed in the Future of Nursing report, as well as the recent position made by the AACN on how competency-based education in nursing 
may serve as a vehicle to advance more diversity in the nursing profession? Is competency-based education the ultimate opportunity equalizer to reinvigorate the promise of education for people of color and ultimately to meet societal expectations for better health equity in the profession? So I will just say, I was highly excited to see Western Governors University, WGU, mentioned regarding our competency-based evaluation and our removal of seat time limits. You know, I think in general, people think they have a perception of competency-based, but one of the caveats and, and the very pinnacle point of competency-based education is the removal of the seat time. For those that have experience and we recognize that experience, we remove the hour barrier, which as a mother of a young child and having worked throughout all of my college, that's huge, right? I didn't have the opportunity to attend a competency-based education college. However, the idea of being able to really be evaluated on my knowledge and have credit hours replaced with competency and allow students to demonstrate their true knowledge and ability, either through a written assignment or through a high-stakes assessment, as we do, would be a huge way to remove barriers. I am excited that we were mentioned. I'm excited that what we do at WGU was recognized because it allows for students, all students from all backgrounds, from all experiences, to progress using the knowledge that they have. Is competency-based the equalizer? Is it the thing that is going to move us to the next level? I definitely think it's at the forefront. I definitely think that competency-based education, as recognized by the AACN, as we move toward a competency-based framework in nursing, does help us allow our students to advance their careers and degrees because we know the impact that makes on the patient population and their health and wellness and also security within the healthcare system, right? Let's not mention that, the feelings of security that you feel when you have uh, providers that look like you and can speak your language. However, it also allows us to move students through and recognize who they are as that whole person and their experiences. So, you know, I'm quite proud of WGU and I look forward to hearing what you have to say, Sue. Well, I would just say this, that I am glad that you're excited that we mentioned you in the Future of Nursing report. And we mentioned you because this is the future of nursing. I was familiar with Western Governors University probably a decade or more ago. I can't even remember how many years we go back, but I was very impressed. And that's why Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, my employer, you know, made an investment at WGU at the time because it was going to come out with this competency-based education. And, uh, you know, I just see this as a promising way to integrate equity, social determinants of health, and population health into the nursing curricula all at one time. So we were so happy to mention you. Let's now focus our discussion on how the healthcare industry can cultivate a more diverse and inclusive environment for nurses in the workforce. Efforts to recruit and educate prospective nurses to serve a diverse population and health equity is ultimately going to be fruitless unless we accompany that with efforts to acknowledge and dismantle racism within nursing practice. And the Future of Nursing report was very clear that most organizational efforts to change culture in such a way as to eliminate institutional racial discrimination are often ineffective. 
I mean, it requires more than just mere programs or statements. It requires developing action-oriented strategies, holding difficult conversations about privilege, dismantling longstanding structures and traditions, and exploring how interpersonal and structural racism adversely affects patient outcomes. The goal of health equity is really going to be more likely achievable um, when it becomes deeply ingrained in official systems and structures and becomes inherent in a cultural shift that includes inner reflections on bias and structural racism rather than being pursued through one-off initiatives and well-intentioned efforts that aren't really formalized. I mean, how do we begin to have this open conversation in the nursing profession when it comes to recognizing systemic racism, when there is denial that it even exists? Can you discuss the impact of systemic racism and white privilege in the nursing profession? Well, let me start. This is Sue. I would say that the place to start now, in my humble opinion, is with the report. Because any report that comes out of the National Academy of Medicine with those recommendations has to be based on evidence and research. And so we're not dealing with opinions or politics or what I feel like saying, or what we feel like putting into a curricula. It is facts, it is facts that the inequities in this country lead to very, very, very poor outcomes. In fact, we know that in this country, we spend the most amount of money, trillions of dollars on healthcare, and we have the worst outcome. Now, how can that be? That's, that's crazy because of the inequities that we have in this country. And so let's start with the report it's all based on research and evidence. The recommendations are there and people can use them. They don't have to say, I think we should do this. I feel like we should do this. No, we need to do it because this is what the evidence and the research says. So using that research and evidence and then having these crucial conversations with honesty and kindness, right? And understanding that Janelle and I have talked about, there need to be safe spaces and expectations, I, I'm going to say, for the civil discourse. And take the individual blame out of conversations about bias and racism and talk about race as a social construct before talking about racism and teach about the systems that we are dealing with and not just interpersonal cultural humility. Both are important. But I will tell you, someone can have all the cultural humility in the world. And if they are working in a system with inequities, it's just not going to happen. For me, it's about creating space for dialogue. I think there has to be a planned out every health organization, whether it's higher education, a health system, a nursing home, a public health system. There has to be a space in dedicated to communicate feelings of bias, we must acknowledge structural racism. How do we do that? First and foremost is to have a space for it. It has to be within our who we are, right? It has to be like our last name. So as now that we are, the social determinants of health are recognized and acknowledged, which, you know, let's be honest, in very frank wording, that is a, a very comfortable word for racism in healthcare. So I think if we have a very strict, prescriptive, you must have a space to have this discussion. You must either have spaces for dialogue, chat, 
set time in your organization. It really has to be as much as systemic and structural racism, it has to be a systemic and structural approach where there are, are set guardrails that we have to create an opportunity to have the discussion and not just the anonymous discussion. And I know it's hard, right? I'm not, I'm not saying by any means that this is not gonna be hard work, but not just the anonymous discussion in an email inbox that goes to another anonymous thing that keeps it again anonymous but really opening dialogue and opportunity for people to engage. Acknowledgement to me is the beginning, but there has to be work, right? Work behind it. There has to be an infrastructure, a requirement for an infrastructure to support the discussion of this difficult dialogue that can create an opportunity for those for the future. You know, I like your examples, Janelle, of creating a space and structures for people to have these crucial conversations. And I, I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of terms in this report. And again, I keep saying a lot of new information for people. People have to feel that they can resonate with this and it's relevant to them. I think we have to bring it down and be concrete. We have to give examples. People have to feel it in their bones that this is the right thing to do. You know, giving examples like Serena Williams almost dying in childbirth. You, you might've remembered those stories because she wasn't heard. Or Susan Moore, a black physician from Indiana who believed that white doctors and nurses undertreated her pain and ignored her symptoms while she was hospitalized with COVID and the, the hospital discharged her, but she returned to a different hospital within 12 hours and later died from complications of COVID. This next example is one that I am familiar with. I have heard this before. It makes my skin crawl if I can say it that way, but white patients who request white nurses instead of the assigned black or Pacific Islander nurse, or a male nurse, right? You've heard of these examples. And finally, Asian nurses reporting verbal and physical attacks during COVID because of the, you know, all the politics that surrounded COVID and saying that this all came from, from China and then blaming those nurses. It was just really unconscionable to me. So we just need to teach about, be concrete, but then teach about solutions and how to be a leader and advocate by pointing out those really specific areas that people can resonate with and, and are relevant to their real lives. Yeah, I've been the nurse that had the request for a different nurse because of my race and ethnicity. And so I understand what that feels like personally. And then, you know, you talked about the things that to me, uh, especially as an African-American only being 13% of the population and have been 13% of the population for a very long time, I have witnessed personally the fact that the most deafening statistic, right? The Black and American Indian and Alaska Native women are two to three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. My sister had miscarried twice because of incompetent cervix, and that is something we can solve for and have been able to solve for uh, for a very long time, and yet she would be addressed as, where's your baby's father, that her husband of over 20 years? She was not treated for pain management. She you know, was not evaluated completely. And, and if they would have recognized that she just had an incompetent cervix, it could have been something mitigated pretty quickly and was after she had already lost two children and changed positions three times. So 
those are the risk factors that we deal with. But again, it's about this conversation. It's about the report. The report really highlights these key challenges that African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Native Americans have a long time been burdened to really advocate for themselves. And I agree with you. I think the report is the best first start because it gives this holistic evaluation of a very painful experiences, but also provides rich strategies, right? As to building pathways, as to creating opportunities for leaders and mentorship and development of those systemic and systematic changes that we have to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Can you discuss the importance of social and emotional learning for students in nursing programs and how it can improve self-awareness and foster improved interpersonal skills to support health equity within the population? And with such difficult times in the nursing profession during this pandemic, how can social and emotional learning be utilized to support nurse well-being by helping them integrate their thoughts, emotions, and behaviors in a way that supports greater health and well-being in life? How can we provide nurses with strong social emotional health through learning, a way of caring for them so that they can care for others? Well, from a WGU perspective, I think it's important to mention what we do from a social emotional learning aspect. We actually have all of our undergraduate students complete a social emotional learning course as their first course, the first experience for many of them with WGU and a competency-based education framework. And what this course does is it really requires the students to use the affective domain and really think through how they can be successful as a working adult most time and be focused on their well-being. This course focuses on helping students understand themselves, their thinking process, setting limits, professional communication, collaboration, and most importantly, self-care. It helps them think about themselves as a nurse, but also as a student, as a parent, as a professional, as a diverse professional, and how do they get into the mindset of being in school and completing their schoolwork, but also all of the other responsibilities they have. And again, we have majority of our students that are nurses already. And so they're completing their program while still having to manage all of those other things. I know that well-being is really important to you as well, Sue, and it's highlighted specifically in the report. Yeah, it it certainly is. And for those of you who don't know, the report was supposed to be launched in December of 2020. And we had some things on well-being, but because of everything that happened in COVID and the inequities, and we saw nurse burnout, we were really able to delay the launch of the report and bring in more research and evidence on how critical well-being is. And we, we really were able to make those connections. Some of the universities, even before COVID hit, nursing schools, they were really hit with nursing students having, you know, a lot of mental health issues. And committees had to form, again, even before COVID, on how they were going to take care of their nursing students. I think we're just coming into that. It sounds so strange that a profession as caring as nursing would now have to step back and figure out how to take care of themselves. But we're, we're givers. We, we like to give. We like to take care of others. 
But I always say you can't give what you don't have. That is my mantra. You just can't give what you don't have. In thinking about how to advance health equity in our healthcare system, you both provided insights on how we need to first work to create a culture of equity within the nursing profession itself. Nursing has a history of racism that continues to impact the experience of nursing faculty, nurses in practice, communities, and patients. And eliminating racism in nursing and in broader organizations where nurses work will only be achievable if nurse leaders advocate for and build systems that promote equitable health for all. Nurse leaders have a responsibility to address structural racism, cultural racism, and discrimination based on identity, place, and circumstance within the nursing profession to help build structures and systems at the societal level that address these issues and promote health equity. For this to happen, we must address the underrepresentation of minorities in leadership roles. According to the Institute for Diversity and Health Equity, minorities comprise only 14% of hospital board members, 11% of executive leadership positions, and 19% of first and mid-level managers, while minorities represent 32% of patients in hospitals that responded to that survey. An even more somber statistic from the National League of Nursing shows that Blacks make up only 9% of academic leadership and nursing programs. How can we increase the number of nurses from underrepresented groups in leadership positions? And what can academia do to pave the way for this to happen in practice? Well, let me just throw out a couple of facts and then Janelle will have some specifics to add. We, we really found that, you know, there, there needs to be more leadership um, among underrepresented groups, we found specifically that in leadership positions, and I'm talking about deans and chief nursing officers, 90% of those positions, 90% of the leadership positions in nursing were held by white people. I know that Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, my employer, has a number of leadership programs for underrepresented minorities. That is really our target. We realize full well that we need to do more um, about this as a foundation, and we're making great in investments. You know, we, we need to recruit and retain students of color and, and give them the tools to become leaders in academia and practice. We need to start on, on their first day or even before that to really inculcate into their heads that they are leaders and they can succeed and with the mentoring that goes on, we need to specifically pay attention to nurses of color and, and mentor them as much as we mentor other people and sometimes even more so that they are on a path to success. Yeah, I'll say I represent the 9% of Blacks that make up academic nurse leadership currently in our country. The responsibility is great you know the moment. I, I will never forget when I took this position as the chief nursing officer for the College of Health Professions for WGU, it was a huge opportunity professionally, but also an opportunity that I felt almost immediately, and I hope I won't get choked up on that, but almost immediately for every woman who will come behind me and every woman of color that will come behind me. We have to create an opportunity to diversify the workforce by saying it's okay to step forward, to ask to see the leadership, 
Less than 3% of people of color see executive leaders within their entire career. Less than 3%, they're never exposed. Even if their work is being used and, and, and propelling the next person, they don't get exposure. So I'm asking everyone, right? Everyone listening, you have to speak up for that person in a room. I'm giving that responsibility to all of us, myself as a leader, and those who, have, who are marginalized, um, those that are a majority in the room, speak up for those that are minority. This includes men speaking up for women. This includes our gender diverse population and those of us that uh, have not experienced that speaking up for those. You have to speak up for them. You have to bring their work forward. We have to take on that responsibility. It is because if you get there, you have to pull the next person up with you. Because number one, who's going to replace you secondly? And number two, don't, wouldn't you rather foster and mentor and, and develop the person that does replace you? <laughs> that would be awesome that you have the relationships with those that you want to see advanced and that you're moving them forward, creating opportunities for them to get visibility. It, it is a hard path that we have to now harden out and, and, and really open up the pathway, but it has been a significant responsibility, but I say it's all pure joy. I've been welcomed, but I tell you, if I could give you any, anyone any advice, I, I found the network. I, I constantly reached out to those that I felt had a, had a voice in the room and created opportunity for myself. Yeah, I'm going to put an exclamation point on this, and I'm just going to sort of uh, make a comment on what you've described here. You really went into great detail about how you did this for yourself. You reached out to this person. You reached mm -hmm. out to that person. And, and what I'd like to really call home is that we cannot leave this to happenstance. You did it. You're motivated. You know, you wanted to do it. You right. saw the need. But we need to put more structure around this these mentorship and leadership opportunities. Again, it, it's something that Robert Wood Johnson Foundation takes very seriously, but let's call our associations to task. Yes. Let's call all of our schools of nursing to task that we can't leave this to chance. We're gonna miss a lot of people, Janelle, if we just leave this to chance. We've got to put more oh, structures yeah. we do. in place. I'll give you an example. The University of North Dakota RAIN program recruitment and retention of American Indians. This provides academic support and assistance to indigenous nursing students from pre-nursing program to doctoral education. I'm calling for structure. It has to be intentional. It has to be intentionally put into the infrastructure of how we do our work. Right. So we yep. recognize those marginalized, okay, that's one step. And now we have to build the infrastructure to ensure that there is no way, no barrier. Because for that person that doesn't speak up, that doesn't find the network, that is the only and may not have the ability to insert themselves in certain positions. Yeah, they may not see that They may in not themselves. even see it. That's others, exactly right. Others will see that in them. That's they would exactly not right. see that in themselves. We will be missing exactly a lot right. of people if we don't do this. So this might be a, a good time to mention too, it's the call to get nurses, all of us to work together. Did mm -hmm. I not mention at the beginning of this <laughs> podcast, the trillions of dollars we spend on healthcare and how our outcomes are really, really poor. If nursing cannot come together as a profession, and that means working hand in glove with each other 
you know, one of the recommendations, the first recommendation, in fact, calls for nursing organizations to work together, not in silo, when there's so much more power in numbers when we can do this as a team. Now, as much as COVID has really been so hard on our, on our profession, I have heard nurse after nurse say that they've also felt bonded like they've never been before throughout this crisis. So what you're calling for is to not be intimidated. Let's all work together. And I'm saying, yeah, let's take that and, and exponentially blow it up and say, we all need to work together on all of these issues. There's a lot at stake here in our country. Are you not embarrassed, Janelle, by the outcomes, by the poor outcomes of this country? Are you not embarrassed by that? It is. It's, I am. It's embarrassing. I it am. is. Have you spent my whole life in health? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely. And this this report calls for nurses. Look at the title: Nurses Charting a Path for Health Equity. And uh, we're calling on all nurses to work together, not in silos, but together. Yeah. And I love that, you know, the report also calls about leading beyond healthcare, right? Going beyond just within the healthcare organization or your institution, but really impacting this at a local, state, and national government impact, right? Really moving forward. I, I absolutely love the report highlighted significantly how we can become, we need to be part of boards, right? The Nurses on Boards Coalition, we need to be moving forward and really helping to make that change. That's how we'll do it beyond even healthcare. It is making a significant impact. Absolutely. You know, the first report talked a lot about interprofessional collaboration, and that's great. We got to keep working and shipping away on interprofessional collaboration, working with physicians and social workers. But this report calls on nurses to really work on their multi-sector yes. partnerships. Yes. If nurses are going to help lead the efforts around health equity, then they've got to get out of their own way and be comfortable working with those organizations that represent the social determinants, food insecurity, housing, social isolation, economic situations of families. We need to be comfortable in working in those spheres. That's when we'll, we'll know we made it, Janelle, is when we start working with those sectors. Yeah, and Eric, I know this is the value-based care underpinning when we talk about really making that impact. Absolutely. And I can't help but think about all the implications of what you're talking about, really a, a transformation in our industry, heightened societal awareness and, and really creating enablement above and beyond where the nursing profession even is today and not accepting or tolerating the status quo. And there's so many challenges that we have to th be thinking about. And, you know, one thing I, I, I wanted to ask you both about is just we're, we're facing these challenges with nurse staffing and it's not a new problem but you know we 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 consistently hear from organizations that they can't find nurses it causes obviously a compromised care delivery model where you potentially could create invariably some level of harm because you're in an understaffed situation and now we have a pandemic that we're dealing with and i wanted to ask you both just Generally, how can nursing programs and the healthcare industry create an improvement in terms of staffing for nursing? And then also, where does that tie into nurse well-being? You know, within this pandemic, you know, we see the pictures of nurses with 
the N95 masks and the big swollen faces. And I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, distress and harm and that's being inflicted on nurses that are on the front lines. Can you both speak about that as well? Yeah, well, let me start with the evidence and what we know. We know that nurses don't go into nursing for the big salaries. What nurses really care about in terms of their own well-being and their satisfaction and their engagement at work is really their environment that they work in. They want to work with people they get along with, but really they want to work within environments that are well-resourced that have the, the, the personal protective equipment and have enough staffing so that they can do the job that they learn to do in school. And that's what the research shows. And the research also shows that the better staffed an environment, the safer that environment. And, and we know that. So we always start with the evidence. Uh, and it's all connected to well-being because if a nurse feels like they're well-resourced, the administrators uh, care for them, their colleagues care for them, and there's enough staff for them to do their job, they're going to do their job better. They're, they're going to be better able to do their job. So starting with the evidence is really first and foremost. We know there's a risk when we have an understaffed unit. The, the challenge is, is even if it's not understaffed, if it's properly staffed, what's the well-being and the thought process of that nurse? Have we provided them the skills throughout their education to know how to handle the stress of being a nurse, right? Yes, there's one part of talking about caring for the patient, but there's a whole other part in talking about caring for themselves and how we do that. I think in education, the things that we have to do in order to truly you know, help to close the gap, yes, we need to have more ability for students to enter at all different pathways into the profession. That's one. We have to remove the financial barrier, um, the long-term debt that is disproportionately for people of color, right? Uh, the debt that they pay in order to become a professional nurse, that we have to start to really think through expansive scholarships. We have to work together as institutions of higher education and really creating that opportunity and pathway. We have to see that we are are all in this together to really close this. And that is a problem for all, because when we don't have nurses, this is a problem for everyone everywhere, right? Because everyone at some point usually enters the healthcare system. And so it is dynamically impacting everyone. Yeah, I'll just make one point here. There's been a lot um, that has been conveyed here. And as much as we're working with, with individuals, I really wanna emphasize, and once nurses are in their work settings, uh, it's really up to leaders, administrators to really find the long-term solutions to address what's going on in the systems, the structures, and the policies that create workplace hazards and stresses that lead to burnout, fatigue, poor physical and, and mental health. So yes, we need to give individual nurses all of these skills. But again, if you have the most skillful nurse in the world in terms of his or her own well-being. If they are working in a system that's broken, that's not well-resourced, that doesn't give them the resources that they need, it's just not gonna work. Yep, and they're gonna continue to leave, right? Because you could yeah. do it all, and then if it's all left to you, then you, you know that's where you are. It's difficult because then they're gonna continue to leave, right? They have this entire infrastructure that although they are using all they have, all the tools in their tool belt, they're fighting against something they cannot win, right? And so it has to be 
a really system approach, I agree. Let's focus on the system level approach for a moment. Right now, the industry is being charged to find ways to deliver care that improves health equity, addresses social determinants, and takes accountability for population health outcomes. But you can't deliver on the aims of value-based care if you don't provide an environment for nurses to thrive. They need to be well-resourced, have support from top leadership. They need to be empowered within an optimal operating environment, but they also need their work and patient care to align with the organization's objectives in delivering whole-person care that enable success and value-based payment. Organizations need to really think about how to put nurses in leadership roles so they can have a more successful transition to value-based care. And nurses need to prepare for this charge to lead in the years to come, I think. So I wanted to ask you both, I mean, how does the nursing profession mobilize around this imperative we have to advance our health system to one that's more value-based so it addresses the issues of high costs, and profiteering, high rates of medical errors, poor outcomes. How do we look at that in terms of how the nursing profession can really take a lead in this seismic shift we have to make in our healthcare industry towards value-based care? So I'll talk about the report. So many recommendations in the report, including payment reform, will require policy changes on the part of the health systems, insurers, and federal and state governments This goes way beyond nurses. I'd like to say that nurses should be involved in some of this decision-making, involved with accountable care organizations on boards, but it really is up to the systems that pay care to make this happen. We also need strong multi-sector partnerships with health systems, insurers, businesses, and the state and federal government. They'll all be key to working within the current payment system and reforming it long-term so that nurses' contributions to care are valued. Nurses will never be able to unleash their full potential until their care is more valued and paid for. I agree. I think it's so funny to think about this huge gap between medical professionals as physicians become physicians and nurses. You know, you think about uh, the entire lottery and how physicians get chosen to go to the different health systems. And you think about the payback that the health system gets for employing these physicians, right? So they, they take the student, the medical student, and they, okay, yes, they're going to be here. They match up with this specific area that we need. We need cardiothoracic. And so we're, we match them. We need them. We get some federal funds and reimbursement for having that student here who now is going to be a physician here. Why don't we think of our nurses that way? Why are we not seen as that valuable to a healthcare organization and really worth, right, federal funds that come back to an organization that employ these nurses? You just think about that. That's just a huge dynamic, but we have this huge shortage. We are needed. So when we think about the impact of value-based care, Nurses first need to know what value-based care is. They need to be educated on value-based care. They need to understand cost efficiency. They need to understand the pay for play, right? They need to understand what our patients and ourselves, right, as patients are being charged for still not having the best outcomes health-wise, right? Even though we should, because we spend so much money, as Sue has alluded to multiple times. 
So I think that's first is that from, from me as an educator, first is just educating our nurses on what the healthcare system is. What are they going into? So I think for us, from an education standpoint, I think it's really just starting basically at understanding what is value-based care? What does that mean? And what does that mean to us in our profession? What does that mean to us in reimbursement? What does that mean to the health systems, to insurance companies? What is that? Because again, I think we need a voice, but I agree with Sue. This is beyond nursing. It really is. But we also have to have a voice and we have to have knowledge into the system that we're going into. What is this healthcare system? What does it mean? How is it made up? What, what impact does it make on our patients and their outcomes? And how can we be part of the solution to making a better healthcare system? Yeah. You know, for me, value-based healthcare is, is really going to be the answer. And I know that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are really working towards that. And it's really quite simply, of course, a region or an area having a specified amount of money and really aiming towards those outcomes. What are the best possible outcomes for the, the lowest cost, if you will? But we, we really need to keep our quality up. And for me, what I've seen working is really the pyramid structure. And what do I mean by that? That means that using providers, every provider to the top of their education and training, but starting at the bottom, you know, we might talk about promotoros or medical assistants or nurses aides, they can do some work. And when it's beyond their scope, moving up to LPNs and then to registered nurses and then to advanced practice nurses, and then to physicians and finally specialty physicians. But until we get a handle on how to equitably and smartly use providers in this country, we're never going to do it. We're a nation spoiled by specialty care. We have one thing wrong with us, and we want to go right to a specialist and an emergency room, by the way, the most costly care that we can get, emergency rooms and specialty care. This is not the way that other countries do it. Other countries adhere to, and of course it has to do with resources too, but other countries adhere to, let's have everyone work to the top of their license and move up the health professions ladder according to need and cost, and that's value-based care. And for that, they have much better outcomes. And it really talks about from a nurse practitioner, even the report highlighted the need for nurse practitioners. I know the report talks a lot about expanding their scope of practice and really allowing them to work fully and completely within their scope, but also how important it is for them to have knowledge of value-based care and the impact that can make. And I I think that was really important as well. Yeah. And and I really want to mention too, that the first report, the, the 2010 report, really talked a lot about nurse practitioners and that specific part of our profession in particular. This report, Janelle, says, yes, advanced practice nurses are really important, but all nurses, we include RNs, LPNs, advanced practice nurses, DMPs, PhDs. And and by the way, we give special credence and a, a call, an invitation to more nurses getting a PhD degree, because we know that the science and discovery of our profession is so important. And nurse researchers who will spend their time because they've been trained and and their know-how 
on issues of health equity is what we really need. So for those of you who do know or don't know, we have many, many, many more DNPs in this country by thousands and thousands and thousands than PhDs. So we really, that's, I really want to point that out. That's why we really need more PhD nurses. But my point is that this report is for all nurses. We found in health systems across the country that there would be more value-based care if they let RNs do certain things. But there are barriers, institutional barriers that hold nurses back. We're very familiar with talking about legislative barriers for nurse practitioners, but the institutional barriers are really more predominant than even those legislative barriers. It takes an overhaul. It, it takes really looking into your system, doing a deep dive and how nurses are being held back. But I tell you, if those deep dives are done and nurses are able to practice to the top of their education and practice, more value-based care would be at hand for us. Well, I had one last question for you both. I mean, we've talked about the value-based care movement, the imperative that we have as a country and where the nursing profession can come in and be crucial in driving improved outcomes and lower costs. But I wanted to ask you both just in terms of restructuring payment models. We think so much about that and designing these alternative payment models, create engineering compensation and, and designing you know capitated payment models and global budgets to provide the outcomes where there's an economic incentive. Should we be thinking about that also in terms of providing upfront funding to support key nursing roles and functions as part of that PM, PM payment? to healthcare organizations. I'd love to hear your perspective about how we can better incentivize nurse care management and team-based care to improve care outcomes, to really improve behavioral health, addiction, social determinants, health equity, and create a more influential uh, model for nurses to participate in the value-based care payment model. Well, I'll just talk very generally, and then I'll, I'll have Janelle to chime in here. But I'm going to take a different tack here. Yes, we need more nurses involved in value-based care. We need more care coordination. We, we need to take the things that we know work and really apply them. And we do have this evidence, but we, we need more. We need more evidence. But it's, it's not always just the evidence that's needed to change minds and hearts. It's really policies and politics as well. But I just want to take a little bit of a different tact and say that we need to pay attention to those nurses who are in the community. This, this report is about health equity, right? And addressing social determinants. We have nurses working in the communities, public health nurses, school nurses, nurses who work in the prison system, uh, in community-based centers. Those nurses really need to be valued much more than they are. Right now, our healthcare system and the way we pay nurses is really jilted, if that's a word mm -hmm. I might use. We need to pay more attention and give more credence to the value of those nurses who are really, truly in the space of addressing social determinants and equity. I, I will tell you that I can't remember the exact statistic, but probably around 25% or so, 25, 30% of all the schools in our country have a full-time school nurse. 
when we know that one out of every three visits to a school nurse is around mental health. And that has just exacerbated in these days of COVID and especially with students of color, okay? So paying more attention, getting more school nurses out there. Every school deserves a school nurse. We deserve public health nurses in every community. We also know that school nurses are able to bill from Medicaid, but they don't know the system. We've had this conversation. They don't know the system, the business of value-based care, for example, and, and billing and, and that business savvy, if you will. So if more school nurses could bill Medicaid, that would be better, a greater incentive, and perhaps more school nurses would come into the fold. But that's how I'd like to leave it, paying more attention to the nurses who are truly working in the space of health equity. Yeah, and I think, you know, we have to think about the impact of value-based care on the wellness of our patients. At the end of the day, the nurse can make a significant impact because through value-based care, they're transitioned from focusing on a, a health record, an EHR, until to actually thinking about patient education, right, being vital, their self-care after discharge. Those are all things that value-based care you know, more nurses would be able to incorporate patient education. They'd be able to do a lot more with their job, in my opinion, and really impact the patient outcomes. I think that would be beneficial. Again, I think it's important for us to think beyond nursing, though, when we think about these huge shifts. But I do know that we play a significant role. We are, most importantly, our role is a wellness and illness prevention, which I think is foundational to value-based care. So it is in line with who we are and really thinking about how do we support that preventative medicine like the school nurse does in providing that mental health support, like the social worker in collaboration with the nurse practitioner complete every day in just evaluating a patient that may have come in for some other you know, disease process. I think it's so important that we as frontline providers think through our nursing care and the impact that we can make from a patient education perspective and how that can make it such a significant impact on the well-being of our patients. That's my thought about value-based care and how nurses can make a difference. Well, what a great way to end our interview today. The future of nursing 2020 to 2030, charting a path to achieve health equity, a similar report for the future of a profession with such a profound impact on this race to value. Indeed, nurses can make a difference in the future as we see a better way for more equitable outcomes, lower costs, and improved patient care quality. Thank you both, Dr. Hassmiller and Dr. Sikolowicz, for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much. This has been phenomenal and really appreciate our time together, Sue, today.